welcome to the Incomparable TV Podcast, where we talk about various shows all over the place, and this time we are talking about Voltron Season 4. We are back for the DreamWorks and Netflix show about robot lions and the people who fly them. Or and who just- quit flying them. <laughs> and just like the show, we've had some shifts in our lineup. Uh, I am Shannon Sutterth, and joining me tonight are Chip Sutterth. Hi, no relation. Wait, yes, relation. Yes, relation. Alyssa Franke. Hello. And Dan Morin. Hi there. Wait a minute. Dan Morin, who are you? I- I've come to <laughs> reclaim my rightful place in this assemblage of lions. <laughs> But yes, we've got a couple of folks who have not joined us for these particular podcasts before, but we're very happy to have them. And to get started real quick, since you guys have not had the chance to do this before, Alyssa and Dan, just a quick recap of uh, how you guys decided that Voltron was worth talking about on a podcast. Because I wanted Chip to stop harassing me over Facebook (laughs) Messenger to watch it. (laughs) It's not like that. Fair enough. Yeah, hostage taking, always very effective. I mean, I've certainly done it to friends before, so it's not like I have a leg to stand on here. But yes, this is how I got into Voltron. Okay. <laughs> That's just how I got so, into podcasting. <laughs> yeah. So in your case, Alyssa, this, uh, the Legendary Defender was your first experience with it. Yep. It's my okay. first. Yay. Uh, how about you, Dan? Well, I did indeed watch Voltron as a kid in the 1980s, and I can't claim to have watched it with any regularity. Um, I, I certainly was well familiar with it. I had ro- all the lions that could form mm-hmm. into Voltron. I might still have it somewhere. I have to see if it's in my, in my parents' attic, maybe. Um, <laughs> and so I had those, and uh, I definitely remember watching it, but honestly couldn't tell you much about it. And then later on, when I got more into anime, in like when I was a teenager, I learned that it was basically just an invented show that was mishmashed together from a bunch of different <laughs> Japanese yep. animation series. So that was kind of like like seeing how the sausage is made. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I was very excited when they announced that they were going to do the the Netflix reboot, and I've found it utterly delightful so far. And if I haven't been here to partake before, it's only because my scheduling didn't work out. But I'm, I've been following the season pretty much as they come out. And we've got you now. Their catchphrase when they when they announced this thing was that it's not going to be like the old show was. It's going to be like the way you remember the old show and <laughs> that, that is that's really still that's still it. spot on yeah totally agree with that very quickly since um none of you were here last time around uh quick hot takes on season three as we turned out to have this split up where season three turned into season three and season four yeah. um what did you guys think of the first seven episodes i was a fan of it i was glad that we eventually got allura right or is that mm-hmm. um yes. Which I was looking forward to because as a kid, again, I had the the toys and the lions and I remembered that it was always weird that the colors of the pilots didn't match the lions mm-hmm. for all of them. And I was like, well, that's weird. I kind of remember it that way. But I also remember most of these characters. And so it was kind of interesting to see them do that as sort of a callback to mm-hmm. the original. I, I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed pretty much all the seasons. I felt like they had some interesting development there. And it was nice to get like Shiro back on the team, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the way that season three sort of changed up the lineup and we got more of the the history of not only Voltron, but how they all ended up in this situation, how the whole galaxy ended up in this situation. I do really notice, 
you know, how it was originally supposed to be a season and they divided it into two Mm -hmm. because they have two arcs here that both feel rushed in their own way and neither season really feels whole, especially because they do as good of a job as they can with getting through all of their character arcs, Um, but especially the first episode of season four, where you just have this sort of rush to explain, uh, you know, how Keith is going to go to the Blade of Memora and Shiro's going to be back into the Black Line. Like, that felt pretty rushed. Like, as an episode on its own, great. But if you're binging through and watching it, you're going to realize, oh, that all happened really, really quickly. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because they just have to when you have to divide up, you know, you can divide up some big plot arcs, but character arcs are really hard to divide up in seasons like that. I I will have to say I did really enjoy the um this in the third season the episode with the parallel universe mm-hmm. which I found delightful mainly just because I really like Slav. <laughs> okay, Chip, how about you? Well, that makes one of us. <laughs> oh, that that makes one of us watching the show, and if you count all the characters in the show, that makes a grand total of one person who really likes Slav. <laughs> the most hated character in in in, in a. I'm sorry, I just can't get over uh, Lance's disappointment. Oh, great, Slav survived too. (laughs) That was a classic moment in this Uh, thing. (laughs) I was disappointed in season three. Not so much because of all of the cool, different status quo changes that happened, but that seven episodes and then it's done and and it, but it's not done it's just paused mm-hmm. and we had to wait months for so it didn't feel satisfying to me and then we only get six episodes this time around one of them is power rangers on tour i'm sure we'll get to that one <laughs> i i sense i'm gonna have a lot of unpopular opinions <laughs> diversity is a good thing but i I I can't make up my mind if I would have been more satisfied with season three and season four if they'd been run all at once, or if there are just some structural problems with the whole season. I liked it, but it didn't grab me quite as much as the first two seasons Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. Uh, At the time uh, when we talked about season three, I said I was going to, you know, withhold judgment before deciding whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, especially since, from everything I understand, this... Season three was done and complete before Netflix said, hey, can we start splitting these up into smaller seasons and releasing them more often? I think the same situation is with what was season four and is now season five and six. So we may see some similar issues. But yeah, even if you watch all 13 episodes Mm. together, there's still, and there's always jumps. It's a kid's show. There's only so much time they have. Some things they gloss over. But there's a really serious jump in the events between Tailing a Comet, which was the second to last episode in season three, and Code of Honor and the first episode of season four. In the middle, we get the the flashback episode, but it's like a whole lot of things have been reset. There's no hint at the end of Tailing a Comet that Keith is going to go start working with the Blade of Marmora. And you know, it's just like, all of a sudden, he's there. I was trying to figure out if they rejiggered the order of the episodes in any way to sort of split them into two, rather than maybe they were more, there was some interleaving or something. Because like, the flashback episode could almost go anywhere. And so I wondered if they moved it up just to give it some sort of like capper for that third season. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird when they do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of, 
some of it is just marketing, right? Like in Rebels, which we've talked about before, they like taught you, they do a series of episodes and then you go on like hiatus for a month or two, right? And then you spool out the rest of the season, which is kind of the same mm-hmm. thing that they did here. They just called it season three and season four rather than considering it one season split apart. But yeah, I don't know if that would have made a difference enough or if it really is more uh, of a deeper structural sure. problem that you're seeing. But sort of taking a look at things, um, as Alyssa said, we've got a couple of character arc things happening, and they both kind of get crammed into certain seasons. Keith uh, winds up taking off uh, and working with the Blade of Marmora, manages to push Shiro back into the Black Lion just because needs must. I absolutely loved the opening of Code of Honor, the when we see the three blades, and you can't quite tell because they're all crouching just how much smaller one of them is. But the minute Colavan says, do not engage, I'm like, oh, God, that's Keith. <laughs> and, and Keith is my favorite, so I really loved seeing him in a different situation. We've also got Shiro's thing. We talked in the last episode the potential of the clone theory. It seems awfully lampshaded that something's not right. We don't know what it is, but something's not right. But we get Shiro, uh, whoever this guy is, is reconnects with the Black Lion, starts leading the team again, and then Pidge and her side journey to find Matt. So those feel like sort of the three big things on their side. And then on the other side, things are starting to split apart with the Galra because we have Zarkon's awake again. He doesn't like what Lotor's been doing. Hagger doesn't like what Lotor's been doing, and Lotor's just doing his own thing. They just don't get along, do they? No, very dysfunctional family. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Family, man. Family is tough. I think that's the most regrettable part of season four for me is not so much that Keith goes off and does something unexpected, which is leave the team. I mean, that's great status quo changing and all that stuff. But the Voltron team that we're left with is the least interesting combination of five pilots that we've had all season. Mm -hmm. I found myself really missing Keith and his sort of fieriness, his uh, difficulty adjusting to being a leader. The folks on the AfterBuzz TV network show that do recaps of uh, Voltron episodes, I think they, in talking with one of the voice actors, found out that the folks at the production company call Shiro's character Space Dad. <laughs> that, which the is, actor encourages that, too. Yeah. And yeah, that's that, just... That, that's a fanon thing. And, and that's just perfect. It, it really is perfect. But it if is. you're going to have Space Dad, you need Keith. Because I think the combination is you've got three very responsible characters. You've got one goofball who's becoming more responsible and then you've got space dad and there's just not enough tension among the group and not not enough spark i think this also comes down to sort of one of the fundamental problems of breaking up one big season into two small chunks because the actual situation that happens seems like the most natural way to resolve the issue of you have one more paladin than you need and Mm -hmm. while keith could be a good leader he's not well suited for being leader of Voltron, I personally feel just because he's a type of leader that would prefer to be a little more contrarian who wants things done his way, kind of perfect for managing a small group that he sort of gets to lead on his own. And they can do their own things and be semi-independent. Like Voltron is, you are there with your team all the time, and you are very dependent on them. And Keith has always been not very good at that. And it does sort of make sense that he would want to find out more about his history, find out what his connection is to Blade of Memora, 
but it's so sort of slapdash introduced at the beginning of season four that he's Mm -hmm. gone and doing these missions. And it also, you know, felt like they're trying to do too much with having Shiro reconnect with the Black Lion and Keith lose the connection in the same episode because Space Dad can also mean giving Keith the encouragement he needs to just be like, okay, yeah, maybe this isn't the thing for you. Like, it it kind of left me with a bit of a side eye the way that whole situation ultimately played out that Keith left the team under those circumstances like it just it kind of felt odd to me about that and then you have everything going on with the Galra it, it felt kind of anticlimactic almost when you got to that big family breaking apart plot because there's so much intricate politics going there that by the time I got to season four I'd frankly forgotten some of the things that happened in season three (laughs) that were supposed to lead to that like there was just so much of a break there when you have intricate politics like that like Mm. you know I'm, I'm looking at it I'm just thinking about Avatar The Last Airbender or Legend of Korra, the way that they managed to have all of those intricate political events going on and didn't lose the audience because they kept it all together. That if there's some big complicated thing going on in the Earth Nation, like you get the series arc around that. You keep all of the key players in mind and events are connected together so you don't lose the threat of it. So I thought that there were some Mm -hmm. really interesting things they were working with and it just feels like Netflix shouldn't have broken this up into two seasons and it maybe needed one more run through to make sure everything was locked down yeah two things second uh second thing i'm totally with you on the galra side of needing some more time some more opportunity to you know flesh that out a bit more on the first thing with uh, the shiro and keith thing uh, I think a huge amount of this is going to get resolved in season five or six when we figure out just what the heck is Shiro's deal. If there is a clone, does the real Shiro come back? Has he been brainwashed into this? Because I think a huge reason that Keith was willing to leave is because Shiro doesn't feel like Shiro anymore to him. He may not know what's going on, but I think he feels it. I also agree to the idea of leadership. Uh, Keith, I don't think is a good strategist, but he's a hell of a tactician. So in the moment, and when he has had to step up in the moment and start leading, he's been brilliant. But when he's got to think bigger picture, you know, except the fact that this coalition thing really kind of needs to happen, stuff like that, that's not mm-hmm. him. Fundamentally, he's a lone wolf or, or lion, if you prefer. And that's that's a tough thing to mesh. And it does make for interesting drama and interesting conflict. Uh, but it also is, it seems sensible to me that he would strike out on his own, especially with Shiro back in place. I don't know that I totally buy that he thinks that something is off, I, I, but I, I do think that he's also more invested in this investigation of his own past there. So I guess I didn't have as substantial a problem, and I, I in terms of the roster switch up, I find it uh, an interesting change. I am glad that uh, Allura gets put into the mix uh, more regularly as her own pilot in both these seasons, um, rather than being being relegated to the castle. I think that provides an interesting and slightly different dynamic. It is tough because they're trying to balance this idea of over uh, overarching storylines along with keeping things kind of episodic so that you can still appeal, I feel like, to the, the standalone, the people who just want to watch an episode here and there. So it is tricky to balance those two things and deal with doling out 
the politics and the overarching storyline mm. about how these um, galactopolitical events are unfolding while also doing things that are sort of self-contained and don't leave you feeling like, oh, I need to go and watch the next episode immediately. So it's tough and, and they maybe don't nail it uh, the whole time. Um, but I do think that it's interesting. I, I wonder if there was a way that they could have spread that out over more episodes, but it, it might have been too, not quite what they're sh- shooting for in terms of like keeping things sort of self-contained. Yeah, well, they're still they're, they're still making a show for kids. Mm-hmm. And right, um, right. this is, right. I, mean, we keep, I keep coming back to Rebels because three of us talked about Rebels and Clone Wars recently, but... <laughs> they pitched this episode. They pitched this series at a younger audience than Star Wars Rebels. I think uh, I, uh, I would I, tend to agree. Yeah, yeah. And the show has gotten as game as Game of Thrones ish <laughs> as it can get for a kids show, and it's got a kids mm-hmm. show pacing. And I, I don't think that they've lost a handle on either of it. I think it's still the kind of show that older nerds and kids can watch together and get a lot out of it but i see the sort of sort of the strain of trying to satisfy both needs in this storytelling and it's it's a little awkward you know you could do it my one of my favorite animated series of all time is gargoyles and that was a show that did a job of like I was always frustrated when you get the standalone episodes because even as a teenager watching it, I was like, no, but I want the overarching plot. I want to keep going with that. But, you know, at the same time, I can understand when you're trying to appeal to a range of ages that it really does. It is a tricky balancing act in there. You're walking a tightrope. It's it's what people perceive kids wanting because, you know, I remember watching to go back to what was my favorite cartoon when I was growing up. The Last Airbender, that it was such a sophisticated show and it didn't try to pander down to kids. It 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 had sta- standalone episodes mm-hmm. and an overarching plot that could carry you through it. And I think that sometimes there's pressure from studios and producers and things like that to say, well, this episode needs to appeal to kids. But, you know, kids will follow along with quite a lot that shows will throw at them. And I think Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. people start second guessing themselves and going, is this too complicated for kids? Do we need to break it up with Power Rangers Go on tour? That's when the show sort of starts to falter. Yeah, about (laughs) that. (laughs) Before we descend into that, uh, just quickly checking since it did come first, the the Pidge and Matt reunion. Uh, From what I've seen in fandom, Matt has become like the most beloved character among the older fans, just, you know, the, he seems to be absolutely perfect and lives up to everyone's expectations. How did Pidge finding him work for you? I, I thought they were going to end it at the graveyard. And I was like, holy yeah, crap, this got too. dark. <laughs> I had that brief moment of like, whoa, this is like, because like, as, yeah. as, as soon as she lands on the planet and she goes up, I'm like, oh, no, I see where this is going. And so I actually thought they did a really nice job with it because it tricked me to like, I was really upset about it because she's been going like this has been her goal mm-hmm. since the, like the first episode, and I'm glad that they finally like devoted an episode to it. Uh, but I was like kind of heartbroken there for a minute that that <laughs> she was just going to be thwarted. I'm like, man, this that would be really cool, but also I feel like this isn't that kind of show. So I was relieved when he showed up. I I'm kind of curious to see how they develop him as a character. Because I guess I can see, I don't follow the fandom that much, but I can see how a lot of mm-hmm. people would be uh, uh, a huge fan of him. And I hope that he gets a little more depth because he has been idealized, mm-hmm. right, this whole time. And he yeah. is, 
deserving of that, it seems like, but you got to balance that with something a little more human. Bex Taylor Klaus just acted the hell out of that episode. She's yeah. fantastic. Oh, God, I yes. thought that was a fantastic yes. episode for Pidge. You know, get to show her just genuinely being a badass of just taking names, getting things mm-hmm. done, getting through it all, and also being incredibly human because she just goes through the ringer on that episode of following up clues, thinking her brother's dead, realizing he's alive, having to fight for their lives. Like, it's a lot. Uh, and I, I think it was just, frankly, the best episode of the entire season. Mm-hmm. Also, about uh, just it was just a small part of that episode, but I also like that they're still playing with a certain amount of uh, genderqueer stuff with Pidge in that the guy that she roughed up to get the information right. about Matt uh, called her a him, and just Pidge is Pidge. And I don't know how much deeper the show is going to get into uh, gender politics or gender identity or whatever like that. But Pidge is Pidge. And I love that the show allows her to be that character, you know? Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm. That This is the one one time. I've, I'm usually not too worried about spoilers, uh, this and that and the other, because I know they're going to happen. I had seen things that told me Matt was going to be back, so I did not get the psych out the way other people mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still able to just, you know, let my jaw drop at how well Bex Taylor Klaus did that dialogue, uh, and just made it so believable and so heart wrenching, even even though I knew crossover appeal for me there too, since she was on Arrow for a season as well. So mm-hmm. I I really enjoy her. She's a great actress. Yeah. Okay, thank you for indulging me. Um, so yes, now we can talk about that episode. <laughs> Hey, Dan, remember that episode of Gargoyles that was all about this guy trying to hit Goliath in the face with a pie? <laughs> I do remember that. That was an awful digression in a great series, and we have found the equivalent, sir. Oh, I, you know what? I liked this episode, but that may just because uh, I am a huge Restarby fan, and I really enjoy Koran just a lot, so... I yeah, this was a wacky episode, but and maybe not as quite as good as one of my other favorites, which is the episode with the space mall, um, <laughs> which we do see again here. But yes, I I enjoy I enjoy when you go, you can take the time in a series to just do something that is kind of completely off the rails, and you know you don't want to spend too much time thinking about the plot here. Although I do enjoy the tip of the hat to Wrath of Khan, um, but it's I Jurassic I found Park. it entertaining and delightful. <laughs> I, the first time I watched the series this time around, I started fast forwarding through this one. I couldn't. I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> so I didn't know exactly how they had solved the issue after watching the first season the first time around. I didn't know half of the stuff that was going on. I was just like, guys, okay, I get that being self-referential and meta is fun and funny and references are a thing, but did you have to put them all into this one episode? <laughs> this is just it it's so much you guys it's so much there are brain worms there's like gladiator arenas did this actually convince people to join a coalition and that they were serious fighters and not just like circus performers what is going on (laughs) Uh, and uh, I, to the showrunner's credit, 
by compressing it all into one episode, it made it imminently skippable. <laughs> true. That yes. is true. There, there is that. Yes, the 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 linchpin episode for Voltron apparently has been found. Uh, I I get what they were trying to do. I I just personally kind of feel there was too much of it. I, I if they could have probably accomplished a lot of what they needed in half the time, and then the other half could have been more character building or more Galra politics or something else that we feel like may have been lacking a bit in this season, in my opinion. But then we get through that episode and we get our standard uh, season ending, such as season one and season two. Season four is our original season three ending, so we get the big battle uh, and the giant climax. And as several of you were taken in by um, Pidge at Matt's supposed grave, there was a moment that I thought, oh my god, no, they're really going to do that as Keith goes kamikaze uh, mm. in what he thinks is the only way he's going to be able to help solve this problem and save millions of people. How did this particular giant battle work for you guys? I thought it was awesome. It had a very sort of Return of the Jedi feel to me in the sense mm-hmm. of like the team like pulling mm-hmm. together and like these multi-prong attacks. Right. And I enjoy the larger strategic feel of it. And the fact that you have to have all these, you, we really have developed a rich, I think, assortment of secondary characters, which mm-hmm. makes this universe that much more compelling because it's not just about our half dozen, you know, friends in Voltron and uh, the support staff, but we actually have all these other characters, the Blade of Marmora and Matt and all that so that we can like draw upon to get the idea of this being a much larger universe. Because when you have a show that has the galactic scale, you don't want to feel like it's about six people and everybody knows each other, right? Like you want to feel like there's a lot more going on there. And so I think, I feel like they've done a nice job building up to the point of being able to throw all these characters together and say, look, this is a galaxy wide coalition. We are trying to like, make this massive attack against the empire and try to like carve out a big section of it. And uh, I enjoyed it. I felt like it was pretty well done. I enjoyed it, but I also feel like it came too soon. Like I feel like this should be the series five finale, maybe. And the reason why sort of brings me back to Lotor and his generals, Mm -hmm. because there's a big twist there that he suddenly is going to go and help our heroes to a certain extent. And that he's sort of had a massive fall for this second half of the season. But it felt like a few things happening too soon. We've only spent one season, which is really only half a season, building up Lotor as being a credible villain and adversary uh, to the Voltron team. And building up the relationship that he has with his generals. And then we have this season where he has his fall and alienates his generals to the point where some of them try to turn him in and he ends up alone and turning to Voltron. And like, it's sort of like, I can see where they're going and logically the plot follows. Like, I've seen this before, but I've also seen it before and seen it done better that I was just sort of sitting here being like, yeah, okay, I figured that this was probably going to happen at some point, but I also don't feel much by it. Like, you know, by the time, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to it again, but by the time we got to the point in Last Airbender, where Azula's (laughs) generals turn on her, and we have, 
either Azula or Zuko on their own having to make decisions about if they're going to like recommit to Fire Nation or go and help our heroes out. They feel credible and scary on their own. And the generals feel credible in their actions and their motivations. And especially since you have Lotor, the prince, and all of his generals are women, to sort of short shift their character arc here uh, raised an eyebrow for me. Just it felt like such wasted potential because the generals were really flipping amazing. And they're just sort of sidelined for it all this season. So I was a little little bit unsure and uncertain about that. But a season later, I would have been totally for this finale. And right now I was just sort of like, okay, yeah. Yeah, there's that shock moment when Lotor figures out that Hagar has possessed or is uh, somehow tracking them through the one general, and Lotor just kills her. Boom. And that is, Mm -hmm. as far as dramatic plot twist shock, that's kind of amazing, but that really does cut off the interesting potential for the other general characters as well. They, They all just sort of start falling apart. Yeah, I, I think a bunch of this is going to get answered in season five or five and six. Um, I, I think we're going to see the girl generals again. Aksha t- says something about, you know, there's one place left we can go, but she doesn't say what it is. So we do not know. Is she actually thinking Voltron as well? Is she thinking uh, throwing themselves on the mercy of the rebels uh, on, you know, the Blade of Marmora? Who knows? So I think there's more coming to those things as, as we go along. I, I think you're right. And I think that's some of the trick about this is that it depends on how you consider the overall arc, right? Like, if this is the middle of the arc, that says something very mm-hmm. different than this being the end of an arc. And we're seeing, you know, in turn, I was want to say this in terms of Keith, too, right? Like, if we're seeing mm-hmm. the middle of Keith's story as opposed to, like, a, yeah. the end of Keith's story, that tells a very different thing about this, this, the progression here. And I think you're right that there are more shoes to drop in the coming seasons about how some of these things are going to play out. The Lotor thing, I, I agree that it makes sense to feel like his his development was rushed and then to have to have him go turnabout by the end of the season. It is kind of a classic trope, right? Like, I don't think anybody, when you have those three triangles of, like, power, right, where you have three people who are all kind of opposed Sooner or later, you know, the enemy of my enemy is going to come into play as a valid Mm -hmm. tactic. And so I was not in any way surprised that he ended up going, you know, and appealing to them by the end of the season, because that kind of seemed to me like, oh, yeah, that's that's the eventual thing. The villain who has to work together with the heroes in order to stop the other villain. You know, whether that means he's actually redeemed himself a la Zuko uh, in in Avatar, since we seem to be uh, referencing that a lot. Or whether this is just him trying to make a sort of temporary alliance as a power play in and of itself is yet to be seen. And I think that's an interesting story that we're going to have to deal with going into the next season. Yeah, I would have liked a little more time with Lotor being sort of like Willy Wonka. Don't stop. Come back. You know, please don't fire me. Let me be your, you know, and and just (laughs) having having a long game in mind. I would have liked a little more time with that. And we may get something like that. As Dan said, if you think about it, we have gotten to the end of 36 episodes. This is halfway through the 78 episodes that uh, Netflix committed to. So we are at our mid-tipping point. So there are plenty of dominoes have been set up and things are going to start falling and coming together. You have a great deal of I faith hope. in this show. And I do too. <laughs> yeah. But I, yes. I, I, And I do too. But the execution for season three and season four, it's just not quite what I wanted it to be. Okay. 
Anything else uh, sort of overall or um, any favorite? It's hard to say favorite episodes uh, because there were so few episodes, but favorite moments uh, in season four, things that you really like that, especially things that we haven't had a chance to mention yet. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about Bebo B, but I think that's maybe just for me. <laughs> <laughs> And and for some of our, I'm sure there are many of our listeners, I'm sure, that loved that episode. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> it means they hired Dave Coulier, of all people, to, to do that. Oh, my <laughs> God. What? That. Yes. <laughs> that, oh, I did I not had... realize that. That seems super weird. Wow. Yeah. wow. Um, I would like to talk about the milkshake cow. <laughs> the milkshake cow was the best joke of the entire series and i'm gonna stand by that point that was pretty darn good i'm with you i'm with you and is it's just adorable that lance still has fuzzy blue lion booties even though he's moved <laughs> they to all do they, they all do but he kept his slippers he kept his slippers no i mean that's the that's the thing he kept the old slippers even though he moved on to a new well he kept the he kept the blue armor it all goes together except for the bayard <laughs> something that we haven't touched on a whole lot of uh that i really liked is lance and Alora finding this common ground that started in season three and it's just sort of kept growing this season that he's no longer flirting at her thank god she has grown to appreciate him as he matures to the point where in the big battle it's like those two are sort of you know the linchpins for each other in helping get themselves out of their situation uh i, I said it before i hated lance in season mm. one still Still didn't like him in season two. Season three, I was like, okay, okay, I'm seeing maturity. I'm seeing growth. This is good. This is good. And now I like him a hell of a lot more than I did. He's still no, not I'm Keith, team but Matt like and Laura, personally. <laughs> Which, um, Matt and Alora? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. I'm 100% I could get behind on that, that too. <laughs> I, I'm multi ship. I'm multi ship in this fandom. I could get behind that. So, any other bits or pieces that you all appreciated? I also enjoyed the milkshake gal. That is a particularly great moment. I, I just enjoy Koran in general, so pretty much mm-hmm. most scenes Koran is in, I'm I'm on board. I know, yeah. he's wacky, but I like him. Yeah, I think we've, we've mentioned, you know, the fact that Keith went over to the Blade of Marmora, but something that I really liked about that was the fact that it gave us opportunities to see him just being a total badass in some ways with combat and with things like that in a way that he has not been able to do before. Yeah, yeah. Some of the animation really seemed to suffer this time around. It felt mm-hmm. like they were up against some budget constraints or something like that, but they relied a whole lot on some static shots where you're just moving the camera. It got a little Hanna-Barbera in spots, uh, and some of the CGI was stepped down a few frame rates or something like that. Not as smooth, but the fight scene when Pidge discovers Matt and right. they deal with they deal with the bounty hunter uh that was some of the most astounding animation that this show, I, I think i think that that episode that single episode is possibly the best one of the entire run so far i, I would get on board with that i will say that i feel like at least this season there has been a slightly less reliance on using the voltron assembling montage mm-hmm. which right. was in literally every episode up until like season two or three well was... that's what dreamworks wants i know but it's it's just one it's a <laughs> yeah. minute worth of footage that we can just save out of making right. in every episode right. it reminds me of when i was like, younger i watched a few episodes of sailor moon and they would use the same <laughs> transformation yeah. thing every yeah. single episode and it's like oh it's a this is a minute and i can go get a bowl of cereal right now because i know exactly <laughs> what's gonna <Yep>. happen <laughs> yep that that <laughs> exactly that, that is an anime thing 
but episode five of this season where they're on the planet where they're having the gravity issues and they arrive as Voltron, they split mm-hmm. up the lions, and mm-hmm. just one minute later, they form Voltron again and they go through the transformation sequence. Yeah. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's what DreamWorks save, wants. Save a minute. That's <laughs> this is I where think. our money is going. Or not, <laughs> because we're just recycling the same damn thing. Yep. <laughs> okay. I've been grumpy, but on balance, it's still a delightful show. And it is it, it mm-hmm. speaks to the kid in me while giving me enough plot developments and character arcs and things like that to engage the dreary grown-up part of my brain as well. <laughs> okay. Well, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us as we pulled this season apart. And I would like to thank everybody who joined me. We can find Dan at The Incomparable. And Dan, what other things are you doing? Well, I'm also doing my usual tech writing at Six Colors. And Mm -hmm. I have a science fiction book called The Caledonian Gambit, which you can go buy at fine bookstores everywhere. Okay. Alyssa and Chip, besides appearing on The Incomparable all over the place, um, have their own podcast on The Incomparable, uh, This Week in Time Travel, which is, of course, Doctor Who related. Alyssa, anything else that uh, you want to point people to? Yeah, I tweet and tumble at Whovian Feminism if you want feminism and pop culture and Peter Capaldi hair gifs. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> and Shannon and I co-host with uh, Erica Ensign, The Audio Guide to Babylon 5 at b5audioguide.com. And once again, thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.